Funding for Think comes from SMU Doctor and Master of Liberal Studies programs. We've all seen people who stride onto a stage or even into a room and immediately command attention. Shoulders back, head held high, arms relaxed and open. Before they open their mouths, the way some people occupy space communicates their confidence and authority. And here's the thing, that posture does as much to make them feel powerful as it does to make us view them that way. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd. One paradox of confidence is that plenty of people who have earned it through experience and hard work don't feel it and thus may struggle to demonstrate their mastery to other people. The good news is that if you possess the knowledge and skills, social psychologist Amy Cuddy has discovered you can fake the posture of self of the self-possessed, and then you can actually start to feel that way. Cuddy is professor at Harvard Business School, and in 2012, she delivered the second most viewed TED Talk in history. Her new book is called Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Amy, welcome to Think. Thanks so much for having me. What is presence exactly? Uh, presence is really the ability to know and access your best self in really stressful situations so that you can be there not worrying about what other people think of you but able to actually engage with what's really happening in that moment. That's so interesting because if you are worried that other people are judging you in a negative way, even if you mean to focus on the thing you've come there to do, you're really just thinking about other people. That's exactly right. And it it makes it impossible for you to be present, right? Because instead of being in the moment, you're trying to get into their heads. You're worrying about what you should have said two minutes ago, worrying about the outcome of what you just said, you know, in the future. So you're doing everything except being present. You're clear up front that the notion that extroverts are the only ones who have presence is a myth. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I, I, first I'm a a big fan of Susan Cain, Mm -hmm. uh, who wrote Quiet. Uh, which is really sort of a manifesto for for introverts, and and she, she certainly shows that that introverts are just as likely as extroverts to be good leaders. But I think that people often get confused about what presence is, and they think it's sort of the uh, motivational speak, speaker kind of charisma, <laughs> and that's really not what it is. I mean, someone can be very quietly present, uh, and and it can be really powerful. I mean, just think, for example, of the power of pauses. I mean, as someone who speaks for a living. You certainly know how powerful a pause can be. And and I think, you know, in the same vein, a quiet person can be very powerfully present. What does it feel like to be present as compared with something else? Is is the opposite of present distracted? I I would say it's it's distracted and fearful. So if you think about what you know? What would you do if you were being chased by a, a, a large predator? That's sort of the opposite of present, right? You're you're going you're it's it's fight or flight, and and I think that that's often how we go into these situations. So these high stakes, big challenges that involve some element of social judgment, cause us to respond as if we're being chased by a tiger, when really we're just going into a sort of stressful situation where someone might not like us. Uh, so that that response is not adaptive. Uh, and it, you know, totally takes us away from the moment. Feeling present, I think, has two qualities. One of them is sort of strength and confidence, uh, but not overconfidence. And the other is, uh, you know, a lack of anxiety and ability to be open, uh, to not feel defensive or threatened. Where's the line between confidence and arrogance? 
Mm, I think that's important. And, and, and as I write in the book, I think that one of the ways in which uh, presence reveals itself is uh, that the person can be confident without being arrogant. I really see arrogance as a smokescreen for insecurity. You know, it's something that people put up when they don't want to be challenged, when they're not actually truly confident. It's a kind of fragile high self-esteem. So I, I think that confidence does not require any bit of arrogance. Someone can be very modest and confident at the same time. Uh, they, they, they trust in their ability, but they also, when, when you trust yourself, it's easier for you to trust others uh, and to welcome their feedback instead of feeling afraid of it. I'd love to talk a little bit about your story, um, because people might say, sure, it's easy for this woman to say she teaches at Harvard. There was a time when your doctors told you not to expect to finish college. Yeah. So I, when I was in college, I went to the University of Colorado, and uh, I, I was in a car accident in my second year um, and had a very serious traumatic brain injury and was told that I probably wouldn't finish college. So uh, my my doctor's told me that I was high functioning, which is not that not the biggest compliment. And, uh, and, and that I should probably figure out, you know, something else to do with my life. And um, that was really, really rattling to me, because I never, it never occurred to me that, you know, who I am could change in that way, you know, that, that I could be told, you're no longer smart, you're not the same person, you know, you kind of worry about having an accident that will change your ability to move, uh, or to see or to hear, but not an accident that will change who you are. And that's that's what traumatic brain injury does. So I was told, you know, find something else. And, um, you know, it took me four extra years just to finish college. So I, I finished four years later than my classmates. Initially, you had lost 30 IQ points. Um, so your, I guess your identity as one of the smart kids was damaged for that time. It was, yeah. And I, you know, I didn't, grow up in a fancy place. I grew up in a really rural area, uh, which is wonderful in many ways. Um, you know, and, and I, I was told that I was smart and I was in, in the gifted program as a kid. But I didn't think of it, you know, I took it for granted, I think. I didn't realize how much it was a part of my identity. Um, and it, you know, it turned out it was a huge part of my identity. So you worked incredibly hard um, on your recovery and also on your studies, but then you still couldn't shake the sense that you didn't belong where you were. What did it take for you to understand that you and your abilities were at some point less of a problem than your persistent lack of self-confidence? Um, I think it was, you know, a couple of things. One was having an advisor in grad school who, you know, I really thought she had taken a gamble taking me in. And, um, and and I don't know that she saw it that way. I think she thought I was a hardworking, smart student, and, and that was it. But I, I was really terrified to speak publicly. And uh, in the first year of grad school at Princeton, I was required to give a first-year talk, all students are, where you present the research that you've done in your first year. So you've done this research. You've got, you know, you have knowledge to share. It's unique knowledge that you have. You have, you know, a special expertise. But if you can't uh, feel sort of uh, comfortable enough to share that, you're not really going to get very far. And so I, I was 
fully ready to quit grad school just to avoid giving this one 20-minute talk. And my advisor, I called her and said, you know, I've decided that it's in my self-interest, in my best, you know, the interest of my, my mental health to quit grad school just so that I don't have to give this talk. And she, of course, thought I was crazy and said, um, no, you're not quitting. And she told me that I had to I had to kind of fake it. She said, look, you know the things that, that you need to know to do this talk. That's not the problem. And it's as you said earlier when you were introducing this segment that, that it's about sort of demonstrating mastery. It's not about um, faking mastery. So you have the mastery. How do you now uh, share it? She said you need to fake it. Uh, the first time and the second time and the third time and keep doing it until you realize that you're no longer terrified and you can actually do this. And that's what I did. And it it took a long time. Uh, And it wasn't really until I was uh, here at Harvard. It was my first year teaching here. And uh, it's a, a pretty intense place. And the students are very smart. And of course, I still thought they're probably all smarter than I am. And One of my students came in. She hadn't spoken for the entire semester, and she had to participate in order to pass the class. And she came in to talk to me and basically shared the same feelings that I had felt at Princeton. You know, she felt like a fake. She felt like she'd be found out, that she was an admissions mistake, and that if she spoke, she surely would give it away. And that's exactly how I had felt. But when she said that, I realized I no longer feel that way. You know, it's not that it happened overnight, but but over time I got myself to a place where I felt that I deserved to be here. And I knew also that she would be able to do the same thing. How did you start thinking about the ways that our bodies and brains interact and how that interaction affects the way we feel emotionally? Um, I'd say that there's sort of a, um, a, you know, there were a couple of things that happened in my in 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 the present uh, about five years ago that that helped me see these patterns Uh, one was watching those students in class like the one who came to speak with me and noticing the difference between you know how they held themselves and how the students who are participating were holding themselves and to me the ones who were not participating or, or who were very nervously participating kind of held themselves like frightened animals. You know, they looked like they were trying to be invisible. Um, they were making themselves small, you know, playing with their hair, touching their necks or their faces, wrapping themselves with their arms. Um, they looked like they were trying to take up as little space as possible, whereas the students who were participating and doing so with a sense of comfort and confidence, you know, their shoulders were back, their chins were were, were, were up, they, they had good posture, they were taking up their fair share of physical space. And I thought that's a really dramatic difference. At around the same time, the chair of my department, uh, Brian Hall, who's an economist, had brought in a guest named Joe Navarro, who is a former FBI agent and has written several books about body language. And uh, I was really nervous to meet him. And I went in, and you know, because it's the chair of my department, and this guy, Joe Navarro, who's a former FBI agent, and he immediately said, why are you touching your neck? Why are you wrapping yourself hmm. up? Why are you making – so he, it was sort of my worst nightmare. He's pointing out all the things <laughs> that I'm doing wrong. But, but at the same moment, it, it connected for me, and I thought, I'm doing exactly what my students are doing. And I wonder what would happen if I changed my own body language. Would I feel more confident in this situation? And, and same, same for my students. 
We're speaking this hour with social psychologist Amy Cuddy, who's professor at Harvard Business School and author of the new book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. You can join our conversation at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Graduate Liberal Studies Program. You can apply now for the Doctor of Liberal Studies degree beginning in the fall of 2016. A customizable evening graduate program for working professionals. More at smu.edu gls. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with social psychologist Amy Cuddy about her new book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372. So, Amy, you're talking to Joe Navarro, and um, as a former FBI guy, one of the things he discovered with regard to body language was that there's a physical dynamic you can set up without touching someone who's being interrogated to make them feel less powerful and to make the investigator appear more powerful. And and what? How did that start the wheels turning for you? Um, it was. I mean, there there were two parts to that. One is that when we feel powerful and confident, uh, or, or when we want to communicate those traits, we expand. We take up a lot of space. We make ourselves bigger, and that's true across the animal kingdom. It's not just humans; it's other animals as well. If you think about. Uh, other primates. You you know, chimps, for example, will pick up sticks and hold them out to make themselves look bigger. Gorillas will expand their chests and so on. So Joe is talking about sort of what an interrogator might do to uh, communicate that power and maybe intimidate the the, the person they're interrogating. But but really, what he was more interested in was what the person being interrogated might do. Uh, And he was talking about a story where someone made himself big, you know, expanded and took up a lot of space. And what was interesting is that he wasn't talking about, he wasn't suggesting that this guy was doing it to intimidate the interrogator. He said this guy was doing it to pump himself up, to Mm. make himself feel powerful. And that's really what I thought was fascinating because when we think about body language, we think about a conversation between people or among people. We don't think about a conversation with the self. And what Joe was suggesting, and I think this was really uh, really astute, was that people are actually communicating with themselves through their own body language so that you can make yourself powerful by pretending to be powerful physically. So since reading your book, I've been trying out this position that you call the starfish. For people listening, um, explain what this looks like. Uh, Well, I mean, I think the easiest way to explain it is to think about what you would do if you uh, were running a race and you you crossed the finish line, broke through the ribbon in first place. What would you do? You would almost certainly throw your arms up in the air in a V and lift your chin and smile. And that's really the starfish. So having your arms up in the air in that V shape and even your, your feet apart a bit, you know, just sort of hip width apart or shoulder width apart, that's the starfish. And it's associated with 
uh, pride and power and confidence all around the world. So it's basically a universal expression of an emotion, just like smiling is a universal expression of happiness and frowning is a universal expression of sadness. Throwing your arms up in the air like that is a universal expression of pride and confidence and power. I'm not sure if it makes me feel more confident, but I will tell you, Amy, that it feels silly in a really joyful way. And so when I do it, it makes me smile. So I I suppose that's half the battle, right? I think so. And, you know, I I think part of the – so the idea that our, our our physical expressions are not just expressions or outcomes of emotions, but also causes of emotions goes back, you know, more than 100 years. And uh, William James, who was the first uh, person to teach a psychology course in the United States in, in the 1800s, um, he, he, he was making this uh, claims like this uh, back in 1883, saying things like, uh, I don't sing because I'm happy, I'm happy because I sing. So the idea has been out there for a long time, but it wasn't really until the last few decades that psychologists started to study this in experimental ways and to see if the, the body actually does change the mind. So first they looked at facial expressions like happiness and smiling, and and now we're looking at at posture. And so we don't know exactly how it works. I mean, as you say, you might feel silly and it makes you happy to do this. Um, There are a lot of different possible mechanisms uh, that, that that are leading to this change in how people feel, but there's certainly something going on there. How can we use this and how long does the effect last? Hmm. Well, I think one, I mean, the the question sort of uh, leads to another question, which is, what is this? And um, and I, I would say that it's not really just about holding a certain pose for a certain amount of time. It's about minding your posture throughout the day. So, you know, sitting up straight, not hunching over your iPhone. Um, or your or your desk, making sure that you get up and walk around. It really is about opening yourself up and expanding your body uh, throughout the day, not just before these stressful situations. Now, the the, the starfish, for example, is a, is a sort of um, uh, static pose that I I would call power posing, and and I recommend that people do that for a short period of time, just a minute or two right before they walk into that stressful situation, but not in front of other people. So, And that's really key because people, you know, the, the first thing that happened, I think, after my TED Talk was posted was, you know, I got emails from, well, I got lots of wonderful, warm, thank, thankful emails, but, but, but also people saying, oh, my gosh, if I did that, you know, in front of my boss, I'd get fired. And I would say, of course you would. You know, don't do that in front of your, don't go in and stand like, you know, Wonder Woman in front of your boss. The idea is that you do this, it's for you. It's for you to prepare yourself to optimize your brain to deal well in stressful situations like job interviews or pitches or, uh, you know, receiving feedback at work or giving feedback at work or even, you know, dealing with a, a conflict at home. By doing this in private before we walk into that situation, we're, we're allowing our bodies to tell our minds you are not in a threatening situation. You're safe. You can rest. You can let your guard down. Everything's going to be okay. Because as soon as we start collapsing and wrapping ourselves up the way my students did, the way I did, uh, we're telling our brains that we're in a fight-or-flight situation. Let's go to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We have Howard on the line in Dallas. Hello, Howard. Hi, Chris. Hi, Professor Cuddy. How are you? Fine, thanks. This is uh, a big privilege. I love your TED Talks. I can say that it's definitely been life-changing. I've forwarded it dozens of times, 
and I can endorse the uh, the power poses and the pen in the mouth because I have a situation that's stressful at work. That's what I do. I'll walk around my office or, you know, make sure that I have the pen in my mouth and make sure I'm uh, checking my posture so I can be confident in what I'm doing. And I appreciate your TED Talk and can't wait to get your book. Thank you. Thanks so much. Howard, I'm glad it worked for you. And, and Amy, let's explain pen in the mouth because people might be yeah, thinking that he, Howard is nervously <laughs> sure chewing on his pen. That. What is this? <laughs> um, no, Howard knows the research well. So the, what he's referring to is the, the idea that if you smile, uh, it makes you happy. And so the earliest studies that, that, that looked at this had people hold a pen in their mouth horizontally, so between their teeth. So basically it forces you to, uh, to, to smile and to smile by also contracting the muscles around your eyes. Now, so w- when people were, were made to do that versus holding a pen in their mouth another way that doesn't force them to smile, um, they felt happier. Th- their mood uh, uh, increased. So that was the sort of the earliest work that he's referring to on this idea that body language is actually changing the mind. So he's combining both the happiness piece and also the power piece, which is really nice. You know, thinking about this, it also occurs to me that um, certainly at the dentist, but at, at, at certain other doctor's offices, the positions that our bodies need to be in for people to do medical procedures on us can really make us feel vulnerable. Like, you know, at the dentist, your mouth is forced open into like a scream and you're sort of, you know, like completely exposed. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's really interesting, <laughs> the dentist in particular. I mean, certainly also posture interacts with the context. So when you're in a posture like that and you're in a, power, you're, you're in a powerless situation, it can, it can create a lot of conflict and be quite confusing. So it's not, I mean, it's not as if in, in any situation, if you open up like this, you're going to feel more powerful. In some situations, you are vulnerable and you probably don't want to be totally exposed. Um, that said, I think that physicians have gotten um, really quite good at helping people to relax by using this sort of body-mind feedback, which I think 20 years ago was seen as sort of, you know, uh, marginalized and, and sort of strange, a strange approach. Now it's pretty mainstream, and they call it the relaxation response. So they get people to do things like breathing slowly and deeply before a procedure. And what that does is it sends a signal to the nervous system, as I said earlier, that you're not in a threatening situation. So it, it operates through um, what we call the vagus nerve. Uh, and it basically tells tells the body and the mind, uh, you can rest and digest. You, you don't have to fight or, or, or flee right now. So we in Western culture or in American culture associate, you know, like fist on hips, elbows out, chest back, head up. We associate that with Wonder Woman or with Superman. Um, would these poses have the same effect for people um, if, if they don't remind them of some kind of cultural touchstone? Mm. So I, again, I think the, the, the situational context is, is relevant. Culture is the broad context, and then you also have the actual interaction. So here's what we know, and, and the cross-cultural work is pretty, pretty early uh, in its development, especially when it comes to feedback. The first of all, the starfish pose, as you called it, which um, I, I refer to it as the starfish pose in the book. The victory pose is universal across cultures. So this work was done by um, a really wonderful researcher named Jessica Tracy at the University of British Columbia. She's looked at the same posture in dozens of cultures, 
And she's found that it is a universal sign of confidence and pride. So everywhere that she goes, she finds that when people win first place, they throw their arms up in the air. It doesn't matter where you are. This is universal. It's hardwired. Even congenitally blind people do the same thing when they win. Hmm. And if you show people from just about any culture a photo of someone in that pose and say, what emotions are they feeling? They'll list emotions like confidence and pride and power. Now, the, you know, whether or not it has the same kind of feedback of effect in different cultures, uh, we're ju- we just know a bit about that. And so far, it looks as if it does. The one pose that doesn't seem to have the same powerful feedback effect in East Asian cultures is, I mean, could, could you guess, if you had to guess which pose it would be that would not work in East Asian cultures? Um, let me think. I, I suppose it could be the standing with your legs apart and your hands on your hips? I don't know. Well, so that, I mean, what we find is the the one that really doesn't work in East Asian cultures is the feet up on the desk. And so (laughs) we haven't talked about that pose yet, but think about this sort of CEO pose where the feet are up on the desk. Your hands behind your head. back in your chair. Exactly. That one does not have positive feedback effects in East Asian cultures for a couple of reasons. One is that in East Asian cultures, Although power is still expressed through expansive posture, it's more along the vertical axis. So how high or low do you bow or lift your glass or uh, during a toast or um, uh, raise your chin? Do you sit or do you stand? It's not so much along that horizontal axis. But the other thing is that in East Asian cultures, it's so culturally ingrained that showing the, the soles of your shoes, the bottom of your feet, is rude, that, that even when somebody's alone in a room – it doesn't have that positive feedback effect that it has in Western cultures. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. Let's speak next with Cynthia in San Antonio. Hi, Cynthia. Hi. Hi, go right ahead, Hi, Cynthia. Hi. um, First, I'd like to thank Amy for pushing through after she was told to give up. I also had a brain injury at uh, an older age, that was basically told I had a 30% chance of committing suicide within the next 10 years. And um, we also had a similar background as uh, I was a very advanced student, but I was a public speaker before my injury happened and lost that ability. And exactly what you said, lost my identity and then to rebuild my identity. But to get to the question, what you're speaking about with body language and making yourself bigger, referring to Joan Navarro, I've noticed that women's fashions seem to reflect this. If you look at the mid-80s when women really started entering the workforce and trying to break through the glass ceiling, they incorporated shoulder pads into their fashions. If you look at heel height going from the 60s into the late 70s and the 80s, and even now where heel height is astronomical, do you address these types of things to women and men when talking to them in a business training environment um, about how to present themselves through fashion? And I notice now that women are more accepted, we've re-embraced feminine fashion. Well, what do you think about all that, Amy? That's great. First of all, thanks for sharing a bit about your story. I, I, I totally agree that it's such a loss of identity. So, um I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing better, but I, I really understand. Um, the gender issue is, is 
pretty complicated. So let me let me. There's so many things I can say about this. And as as someone who teaches leadership, you know, I end up talking to a lot of women's groups. So I think about these issues a lot. I also spent 15 years studying sexism, which is kind of part of what what led me into to this area as well. A couple of things. One. I agree about clothing. I think it's fascinating. I I think about the 80s as the shoulder pad era, and now we've got really high heels. Um, I think that clothing, fashion fashion for women, very much is about uh, sort of expressing uh, power and powerlessness. Um, But I think that, you know, in the end, what we wear, you know, the whole idea uh, that you dress for success is a little bit complicated because you really have to dress in a way that feels comfortable to you. So people often ask me, should I wear high heels? And I think, well, you know, you should wear high heels if you feel comfortable wearing them. If you don't, you're going to feel like you're walking around in your mom's, you know, dress-up clothing, and then you're going to feel like a kid and feel totally powerless. So so I think that the research on what we wear really it's it's kind of simple, but it comes down to what do you feel comfortable in? What expresses who you are? And of course, within reason, right? You need to know the culture of the organization that you're working in. But the gender, I'd love to just talk a little bit more about gender and posture, uh, because what we're finding, I mean, anyone will, will, will be able to observe that women and men carry themselves in different ways. And men are more likely to use expansive postures than women. And it's more acceptable for men to publicly use expansive postures. I mean, at an extreme, think about uh, what is now known as manspreading, where, you know, and the idea there is that men sit with their knees far apart and their arms spread out, like sort of draped over the chairs next to them. That's manspreading. Women are very rarely seen doing things like that. So is it is this something that we're born knowing or is it something that we learn? We've been working with kids uh, to figure out why is it that around middle school you see girls begin to kind of collapse. You know, before that age, our daughters are running around doing cartwheels and throwing their arms up in the air and they get to middle school and suddenly they look like frightened animals. Hmm. So we're starting to try to unravel that. And we can talk a bit more about that after the break. We're speaking this hour with Harvard Business School professor and social psychologist Amy Cuddy. Her new book is called Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. If you'd like to join us, you can email think at KERA.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Graduate Liberal Studies Program. You can apply now to design your own doctoral or master's degree at SMU, specializing in organizational dynamics, human rights, and more. Details at smu.edu gls. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with Harvard Business School professor Amy Cuddy about her book, Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. So, Amy, what is it that happens around middle school that makes girls, um, by and large, sort of fold in on themselves as boys spread themselves out? I think it's that they are uh, starting to express what they've learned about what's attractive to the opposite sex, Mm. which is sad. Uh, What we find is that when we look at kids 
uh, younger kids, so we look at four-year-olds and six-year-olds, we show them images of wooden dolls that are adopting either expansive or contractive postures. And then we ask these kids, which one is the boy and which one is the girl? What we find is that by age four, 75% of the kids think that the expansive ones are the boys and the contractive ones are the girls. By age six, 85% of kids see that association. This is something that they are learning. They're not expressing it until until they're a bit older when gender becomes uh, more sort of salient to them, but we're teaching them this. So I think that we really need to be careful to show our kids examples of women who carry themselves with pride and power and poise and who can still be feminine, that, that we have to sort of uh, disentangle this idea of expansiveness from masculinity and contractiveness from femininity, that you can be big and bold and still be feminine. And I think a great example of this is the, the, the ballet dancer Misty Copeland, who's becoming really a household name, you know, the first uh, uh, black woman to become a principal dancer at American Ballet Theater, overcame many, many challenges, and just carries herself with such openness and pride and power in in one of the most feminine professions in the world. Is there a mood effect from sitting hunched over a four or five inch screen? Yes, there is. (laughs) So, and in fact, you know, it doesn't really matter if you're holding a screen or not. The truth is that that hunched posture is associated with depression, and clinical psychologists have known this for ages. And, and they're, you know, clinical psychologists will be looking at your posture when you walk into a meeting uh, to see what that tells them about your, your mental state. Um, so when we hunch over our phones in that same posture uh, that, that, that is really slouched, our parents would hate it. We, we're sending a signal to our brain that things are not so great, that we're feeling powerless, that we're feeling sad. And that's exactly what we see in our research. Um, I hear from physiotherapists all over the world telling me that they're now seeing the same kind of uh, postural problems in teenagers that they used to see only in women you know, over the age of 70 or 80. So we are spending so much time in a posture that is really making us feel bad and taking us away from the moment. Okay, spending a lot of time in a posture can take us away from the moment. What about people you know, who sleep all curled up? Do they wake up feeling timid? Mm, so this is, I mean, very, very early research, but it, it certainly, you know, People do tend to sleep in a really wide range of postures, but that doesn't vary much for the same person from day to day. So many of us sleep in a fetal position and wake up in that position all curled up in a ball. So in our really preliminary research, what we're finding is that people who wake up in a more expansive posture with their upper bodies, so think about the starfish in bed, they wake up feeling much less anxious than the people who wake up all curled up. Now, let me be clear that this is obviously a bi-directional relationship. So people are probably sleeping in that posture when they feel more frightened and anxious, but it might also be causing them to feel more anxious in the morning when they sleep in the fetal position. So what I tell people is it's hard to change how you sleep, but it's much easier to change what you do before you put your feet on the floor in the morning. So if you wake up in that fetal ball, stretch out for a minute in bed before you get up. What about folks with physical disabilities? Can a power pose work for someone whose body works differently? 
Yeah, so um, I, I hear from a lot of people who uh, have disabilities that prevent them from adopting these expansive postures. And um, and one of these uh, people, really amazing woman who teaches public speaking, named Christi- her name is Christine, she, she wrote and said, you know, I actually just, um, I imagine myself in the pose. So I might not be able to move, but if I imagine myself standing like Wonder Woman, I feel like Wonder Woman, and other people give me that feedback that I seem like Wonder Woman. And she really does. She has incredible presence. And so we started studying that as well and, and finding that when people just imagine themselves in these postures, they feel more confident, they feel more relaxed, they feel more at ease, they feel less judged by other people. When they imagine themselves in the low-power poses, you see exactly the opposite. So sometimes, you know, even if you don't have a physical disability that's limiting your movement, you might be in a situation like a a long flight, you know, where you can't stretch out. But imagining yourself in that more expansive posture could have some of the same benefits. And I guess it's good you can use that in the lobby at the conference instead of, you know, doing exactly. a, <laughs> a victory Right, pose. or you can find a, you know, a bathroom stall and and uh, and some privacy there. But right, there are a lot of situations where we're in public and we, we simply can't stand in a, a strange, expansive posture, but we can imagine ourselves doing so. I want to go back to this idea of imposter syndrome. You know, people who have had success not feeling that they really deserve it or they're about to be found out. Is there some benefit to that? Does it keep us humble? Does it keep us vigilant? Why would we experience this really counterproductive emotion? Mm, it is pervasive. And, you know, it's it's, it's something like 80% of people feel like imposters at some time in their life. It's that feeling that you are, you know, you're the admissions mistake, that you don't deserve to be there and that you're going to be found out at, at any moment. And in fact, when when uh, Pauline Clance, the woman who started to study this in the 70s, uh, had been studying it for a few years, she realized that it really wasn't just a women's problem. Uh, originally, people thought it was a women's problem, that it was an everyone's problem. Everyone feels this way sometime. But I, I, I would say that it's because um, when we feel the stakes are high, so we're doing something we really care about, and we identify strongly with that thing, it really matters to us, um, we start to fear losing it. And we, we look around and everyone else seems to be confident. They're not talking about how they feel like phonies. But uh, the truth is that at some point we all are. So part of it is simply not knowing that other people also feel insecure because we there are such strong cultural norms that tell us not to talk about those things. Uh, as soon as we start talking about it, we find that everyone feels that way. Uh, you know, in the book, I talk to um, Neil Gaiman, the the author of you know a gazillion best selling books, and you know he talks about his experiences with imposter syndrome, and that every time he takes on a new project, he has you know a moment of feeling like he's going to be found out. You know, how could he possibly be paid to do this thing he loves, writing? Um, so it's I think it's it's universal because we all care about something that we do in our lives. And uh, we all fear having that taken away. And we look around and think everyone else is confident and we're not. So faking it until you become it, which is the terrific phrase that you use, makes sense. But it's not about lying to ourselves. It's about believing the stories that we create for ourselves. And there is a difference there, right? Because lying actually makes it hard for us to achieve presence. And we're constantly just thinking about making true this thing that we know is not true. 
I think yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I that that was another sort of misunderstanding right after the talk came out. I think a lot of people thought I was saying that you can, you know, decide one day that you're going to be the best tennis player in the world, even if you've never picked up a tennis racket. Right. And, and that's not at all what I mean. And again, it's back to how you introduced this whole segment, which thank thank you so much for, for being clear about that. But it's about demonstrating the mastery that you have. Um, and so faking it, I mean, so the, the mind is really not very good at sort of talking talking itself down. You know, so so when we feel bad about ourselves, it's hard for us to say, oh, actually, I'm really great. And because we just feel that we're lying to ourselves when we do that. But our bodies are really good at kind of walking us down off of the ledge um, by giving us the signal that we're safe and confident enough to reveal the things we already know, the, 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 the things that we already possess. So it, it's really about personal power about the power to access and share the resources that we already possess. So you're not tricking anybody else. You're only tricking yourself into feeling confident and comfortable enough to unlock those things. So that's why I talk about faking it not until you make it. So you're not just faking it to get through, but you're faking it until you become the best version of yourself. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's faking power, uh, to, to reveal that part of yourself. My, my favorite quote about power is actually about um, a, a Texan, Lyndon Johnson. Um, Robert Caro, his biographer, was once asked, so, uh, you know, you've been studying presidents for a long time. What do you think? Does power corrupt? And he said, power does not necessarily corrupt, but power always reveals. Hmm. And I think that's the trick here, is that when we trick ourselves into feeling powerful— by adopting these big postures, for example, that's one way, we are able to then reveal who we truly are. And the more we do that, the easier it becomes and the more we become the best version of ourselves. So that's how you fake it until you become it. You can use this to sort of deconstruct other people. And I don't mean to imply that everybody else walking around who is successful is, in fact, some kind of fraud or, or faking it until they become it. But, um, you know, even the idea that, you know, we watch people on television running for office and we say, oh, she looks presidential. He looks presidential. And, and there's a question like, what exactly does that mean? Well, that's interesting because I actually think that's changing. Um, I think what looks presidential to our parents', parents generation is different uh, from what looks presidential to, say, a millennial. Um, and, and so what I love to look at when I'm watching political debates is uh, body language that's synchronized. So when we're telling the truth, when we're being authentic, our body language is synchronized. It's consistent. So if you're telling a happy story, your body language is, 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 is happy body language. What you see when politicians are making promises that they know they can't keep is a bunch of asynchronies. You know, what they're saying uh, is, is not quite matching what they're doing with their bodies. So what I'm looking for is not necessarily this sort of old-fashioned notion of presidential posture, but I'm looking for um, authenticity, you know, synchronized body language. And, and that shows me that this person really cares about this issue and is going to prioritize it. Now, no politician can actually make any promises as far as I'm concerned, but at least you want to know what do they truly care about? What are they really going to do? And I think that that is really connecting with millennials. Um, 
they don't expect uh, people, they don't expect their presidential candidates to have learned oration at their father's knee. You know, they, they expect them to be real, to be connecting, and to be uh, sharing their authentic selves. So that's what I like to look for is, is those uh, moments of synchrony, which indicate authenticity, or asynchrony, which indicate, you know, a lack of authenticity. If we walk around looking powerful, how is that behavior reinforced by the way other people react to us? Mm. So, I mean, there's a, sort of a difference between looking domineering, you know, like an alpha, mm-hmm. a non-human primate, and looking confident. But if we walk around using this really powerful posture, so so being sort of domineering and overly alpha, what happens is that the people with whom we're interacting tend to complement our body language, meaning if we're using really expansive posture, they're going to start contracting and using really small, powerless posture. And that is just not good. I mean, we, we generally don't want to be the person who's being domineering. We want to have conversations that open the other person up, that allow us to really connect. So we we want to be able to uh, be confident and, and re- sort of show that confidence, but also openness and warmth and trustworthiness. So you're trying to find that balance. Um, you know, you want to, to, to have uh, good posture, but not posture that's that's sort of overbearing. When we do that, when we are sort of strong, but also open, we invite the other person to do the same. So when we're able to really be present, we're inviting others to be present. And, and that's kind of the ideal situation that you want to be in in most human interactions. I'll just speak for myself here, but I um, sometimes will catch myself really slumped in my desk chair while I'm writing and thinking, and I, I know the posture is terrible for my back, if not for my personality. Um, what are the best ways that you've found to kind of remind yourself throughout the day to check mm. the way that you are moving through the world? Uh, so one is if we're going to have our our phones in our hands all the time which which we do you know i have no i have no fantasies about prying them out of people's hands <laughs> but so if we're going to have them in our hands then at least set an hourly reminder to check your posture so make your phone your friend instead of your enemy that's one thing that i recommend set up your workspace so that you have to reach for things so that your mouse isn't you know right under you uh, so that you have to reach out to use it um, make sure that you know you're 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 your workspace is set up in an ergonomic way. I recommend taking walks. There's so much research now on the benefit of walking uh, uh, while you're working. So, so, for example, walking meetings lead to more creativity and and trust. I mean, all kinds of things like that that you can do. Uh, you know, put pictures of people that you love sort of high up on the wall so that you're forced to look up. One thing that I do if I'm forced to sit for a while is wrap my arms around the back of my chair so that it mm. forces my shoulders open. Social psychologist Amy Cuddy is professor at Harvard Business School and author of Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges. Amy, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thanks so much for having me. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy with help on the phones today from Tori Whitley. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. I'm on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. The show's email address is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Support for KERA comes from you, our members, and from... 
Fort Worth Show of Antiques and Art. 150 exhibitors on March 3rd, 4th, and 5th at the Will Rogers Memorial Center. Complimentary parking for carpools offered by the Mercantile. Details at fortworthshow.com. iCode, a next-generation incubator in Frisco, teaching coding, robotics, and design to young achievers grades 1 to 12, helping to inspire young minds to innovate, collaborate, and create. More at iCodeInc.com. You're listening to your source for NPR News, 90.1 KERA, Dallas-Fort Worth-Denton, and at KERA.org. Also on 100.1 K261CW in Tyler, 88.3 K202DR in Wichita Falls, and 99.3 K257EV in Sherman. Chris Boyd. Up next on Think, how to thrive at work in the age of disruption. We'll spend this hour with journalist Farai Judea, who notes that we live in an era of episodic careers that require lots of adaptation over time and will likely lead us to multiple employers over the course of our working lives. We'll talk about choosing a field that suits your personal and professional aspirations, about how to know the time is right to change companies, job titles, or even careers, and about what it takes to bounce back if you're out of work for a while. Our conversation starts after the news. 